So this evening, I would like to explore, to look at awakening. And first, I like to look at the symbols of awakening and what it might say about it. And in Korea, when you do a ceremony, generally you offer three things. You light a candle, you light some incense, and then you pour some fresh water in a bowl. So you offer these three things. And you offer these three things because actually they're considered symbols of awakening. And so the first one is a candle. And the thing about the candle is that as it lit the room and gives you light, it disappears. And so it's a symbol of selflessness. You could say it's a symbol of not selfing. But what is also interesting with the, that symbol is that it's lit. And by being lit, it has actually two ways of being lit, which kind of you can also say it in English, which is very good. And it is the fact that it's illuminated and it is also illuminating. So that in a way, the candle lit itself and at the same time, it lit, illuminate for others. So now is this idea that actually the awakening is not just for our own self. Of course, it lightens us up. It illuminates us. But also, it illuminates us for others. So it's not just kind of like a self-awakening, but it's also an awakening for others to be of benefit to others. The other symbol is incense. And so incense is a bit like the candle. As the incense spreads its fragrance, it disappears. So again, a symbol of selflessness, a symbol of not selfing, that as there is awakening, there is this dissolution of this very solid, very fixed sense of self. And as that dissolves, then again, you can be of benefit to others. But what is also interesting with the incense, with its fragrance, is that it's pervasive. It goes everywhere without distinction. So the incense doesn't say, oh, I don't like them over there, so I'm not going to go there. I, oh, those corners, I really like them. They look very special. So <laughs> I'll send more fragrances when those guys, never mind, forget it, you know. I'm not going there. Not at all. The, the fragrance just goes everywhere without distinction. So in a way, the awakening reaching out to everyone so that we're really there for the whole world without distinction. 
And the last one is the water. And the thing with the water, again, is two things. The first one is the fact that the water in a container will reflect what is above it. So that it, and it will reflect it without grasping. I mean, if you go above water, the water doesn't go, wow, that one, very beautiful. Let's keep it longer. You know, and somebody else comes, a dripping monster, Woo! don't like it, I'm not going to reflect it. The water just reflects whatever is above it. And when that person or thing goes, nothing sticks inside the water. You just have the reflection. And it's just like a symbol of de-grasping. But the other thing with the water is that it's very adaptable. You put it in a round bowl, it becomes round, square, rectangular, whatever. It's very adaptable. This idea of fluidity, so that when there is a moment of awakening, I feel it helps us to be more fluid, more flexible, more adaptable, more creative. So that's for the symbols of awakening. And here you can already get a little idea of something disappear, and at the same time something is shared. There is very much these two ideas together. Another example I like to give, which is very different, but to me, when I read about it, it really struck me. And this is a book which is called The Day the Voices Stopped. And basically, it's a very, I mean, it's a very harrowing book about the story of somebody who had schizophrenia in the 50s, which was a really terrible time then to have it, went through many institutions, very difficult situation. But really, what a creative potential. So he kept rising, going down, rising, going down. But finally, he, made this, he, he makes it to New York. And at that time, after 20, 25 or more years, they started to have the new drug for schizophrenia. And so he goes to his uh, therapist and she gives him the drugs. And nothing happened. I mean, up to that moment, from 17 years old to I think he was about 48 when he took the drug, he always had voices in, this, in his head, always, relentless. So he takes the drug and the voices continue. So he doesn't think much of it. A month pass, two months pass. He continued to take the drug just in case. Three months pass. And suddenly, he's in his flat. And he feels so different. So different that he's so frightened. He goes into the bathroom and stays there, cowering for a bit. Because he just, his experience is so different. And what he notices is the traffic. He's in New York. He's been there a few years. And for the first time ever, he hears the traffic. 
Then he goes out. Finally, he gets a, he starts to see what's happening. He goes out in the corridor of the apartment and he sees this little old lady who is a neighbor to whom he has never spoken before. And he sees her and he says hello and he talks to her. And in a way, what happened is that for the first time, the voices stopped. But the fact the voices stopped was not just that they stopped, but by stopping, suddenly he had such a different experience. He was aware of the sounds of things around him. He was aware of this lady. He could connect with her with compassion. He could really see her. When up to then, he had never really seen her because the voices blocked everything. And it seems to me that a moment of awakening is a little like that. That suddenly what was in the way goes. And then, of course, we're going to experience ourselves really differently, just like him because suddenly we'll have more awareness. We will be more mindful because there won't be the screening of the thought or the grasping at the emotion or various things that generally blocks our vision. Suddenly we have a vision with none of this. Vision with no grasping. And so it's not just that something is not there, but because something is not there, all the things can really be there. And that's why I was so struck when I read this. And then, uh, when I was in uh, Korea, the way they looked at awakening is, kind, is quite different. And uh, I'll try possibly to talk about it either in two days or maybe next week we'll see how it works. But. When I came back to England and I encountered Vipassana and encountered um, text, the Pali text, the Pali canon, and I read for the first time about the four stages of awakening. And I read them and I thought, wow, this is interesting. You know, I'd never heard about them before. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And so that's what I'd like to talk about now these four stages of awakening as it is presented in the tradition. It's, you might not totally get them totally that way in the early Panil Canon, but over time that's in a way the way they got arranged. What Stephen was talking about, stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, arahat. Basically that's what he designed. And in the Pali Canon it's presented in different ways, a little kind of not so like that, but it, that's what it, came, it ended up as being. But what is interesting, when you hear about four stages of awakening, you know, levels, you know, this level, that level, you know, you think, well, first level you get this, next level you get that, third level you get this, and the fourth one, I mean, like, you know, you get the Big Bang, you know, you get really kind of that, something amazing, you know, like a super Christmas, present, you know, with all the flashbang. 
But what is interesting when you look at these four stages of awakening, they are not about acquiring anything. They're actually about losing things. And in a way, each stage, you lose something. And the next stage, and to me what I found interesting is that the fourth stage, you would think, wow, what is there to be lost? And there's still things to lose there. That's why I found so fascinating. So the first stage. The first stage, three things go. Belief in self. Uh, strict adherence to rule and regulation, which generally is translated as uh, not attach non-attachment to rites and rituals, but the word that use is more like rule and regulation than rites and ritual. And the third one, doubt. Doubt. So in a way, the first one is belief in self. And so this is when, I mean, when we talk about these stages, you can see it sequentially, or you can see it more processually, I would see them. That, you know, at one moment, something goes. And then later on, the same thing can go, but a little more. That's the way more I would see it, than literally things totally go. And so I think this belief in self, it goes. We, we kind of have a very strong experience of self, me, mine, I am like this, I'm like that, I am my thought, I am my feelings, I am my sensation, I am my problem. I mean, some time ago I was in, um, I was teaching, and I was saying, you know, you can have experiences, but generally they are impermanent. And then this young fellow comes to me all excited and a little worried. Because he just had this experience after, after doing very little meditation, but he had it. And the experience was, I am not my thought. He suddenly realized he had thought, but he was not his thought. He did not need to reduce himself to his thoughts. And he felt so good. You know, it was his, his thinking was so spacious. And he wanted to last it forever. <laughs> I said, well, I hope so. But I doubt it. But let him enjoy it while it lasts, I thought. <laughs> so to me, that's what this is. This is a moment where you have an experience, where the f this strong, really sticky feeling of self, belief in self goes. And so generally what you experience is a lot of the time spaciousness. You feel spacious in connection either to something or just you, you feel less you. You're still you, <coughs> but it's less that, you know, very fixed sense of me. But the, the problem with that one is that often, because I just read a book recently, and it's about a guy who described his time at Gaia House and how it is and what is interesting with that one, the, when the experience of the belief in self going, then you really start to see things that are more processual and things like this, is that often you think this is it. This is the major awakening. This is all you need. 
is just know that there is no self. This is just process. And it was very clear in this book, that's what he got that experience of no self in terms of that, of being a processual person made up of conditions. But then he seemed to think, this is it. That's it. I got it. And then, because you have that experience, then of course you're going to have a different look at rules and regulation. Because if you are a process, rule and regulation cannot be fixed and solid. They too will be processual. So then you move from a kind of like a fixed ethics to situational ethics. And again, one has to be careful there, not to think, well, there is no ethics. Because I think we can move from a fixed ethics to a processual ethics, to a situational ethics, to I am above it all. It's all process. Who cares? Again, one has to be careful. I think that first stages, one has to be very careful how one, in a way, interprets it. Because you have the experience, but then generally there is the interpretation of it, the perception of it, and what we do with it. And the last one thing that go at this stage is doubt. And so basically, to me, it's in a way very similar to what we call the great faith in Zen. That in the, in the Korean Zen tradition, they have this wonderful saying, where they say, once you have the great faith, once you, once you break through the doubting mind, you can never retrograde. You can never go back, which means you might be stuck meditating forever. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> but basically, to me, that's what happens. At this stage, you have an experience. You have a moment of degrasping. You have an insight, which basically indicates to you that this works. Up to that moment, you might have convinced yourself that, you know, this should work, they say it works, the Buddha said it works. But then you really know for yourself, this works. This works not only in terms of the method works, but I can do it. It works for me. I can do it. This, I think, is very important in terms of the practice, because once we have that, it will be so much easier to have patience, to have forbearance, when things are not so easy. So that's the first stage. Then you have the next one. The second stage, greed and hatred are weakened. And greed and hatred are weakened. So they become a little less they diminish. And personally, I think this is kind of reasonable, kind of awakening, you know, that greed and hatred, they can not just go like this. They're going to take some time. But what does it mean, possibly in terms of our experience? To me, it means that actually the exaggeration goes. 
So we stop that grasping which leads to proliferation, to exaggeration, to magnification. Because I think this is one of the things which really is, in a way, unnecessary. We really don't need to do this. But we do it so often. There is such an inclination to do this, to exaggerate, to proliferate, to magnify. And I think at that stage, it goes. And so in a way, it becomes so much easier to creatively engage, because then you can deal with what is going on and not what you have exaggerated, what you have magnified, because that is tough. You know, you have something happening, and you say, it's always like this. I mean, to solve, it's always like this, that's a bit difficult. You know, like you need, like, I don't know, a 10-ton truck to deal with that. But something which happened right here, right now, according to certain conditions, possibly we can creatively engage with that. And I remember when I really, in a way, learned that. And it's to see that often the exaggeration is commensurate to the expectation. And to see how the expectation is linked to the satisfaction, to the hope for satisfaction, for an amazing experience. And I remember many years ago, I was living in a community, and Stephen had uh, gone traveling and was coming back. And I was so looking forward, not just to him coming back, that's ordinary, but I was looking forward to the romantic moment where I would meet him. <laughs> on the train station, and it would be like, oh, my darling, and I would feel this intense romantic feeling. And so I was expecting this for days. Finally, finally the day came. This great moment was going to happen. And a member of the community, forgot to tell me that Stephen phoned and he was going to arrive later. <laughs> and she just, just told me in time not to go and get him, but not in time for me to have the great moment. <laughs> and I was so disappointed. My great moment, gone! <laughs> and that's when I saw the exaggeration. I really saw, I thought, I am setting myself up. Because yes, sometimes the great moment can happen, but all the time, just like today, it is not going to happen. And then from this great intensity of looking forward to this pleasant experience, number 15, <laughs> you go down to number minus 10. I did not have my great moment. And I realized it was such a good lesson for me. It was such a good lesson in terms of the magnification of expectation. And after that, I still had my moments, but they were quiet <laughs> and more on the contented side <laughs> and could deal with changes. But you can do it also with something which is difficult, which is 
you don't like something you how am I going to deal with this? I, have, I cannot stand this. This is an interesting one. I cannot stand this. Once I nearly had this moment, and again, it was a, for me a great learning experience because I was at home and I was uh, supposed to take care of my grandma. My mother had gone and grandma needed to be taken care of. So evening had been fine. Morning, I go and check, how is she? I'm supposed to do breakfast, to help her to put her clothes on. And so I kind of, you know, go in the room, go out of the room. And suddenly I realized, ooh, grandma did, had some problem in the night. And there was feces on the floor. And I walked in it, back and forth. And my first thing was, ah! and I thought, hmm. do you go magnification, negative exaggeration, and then it's impossible, or do you go, okay, creative engagement? <laughs> so I chose creative engagement, and I thought, all right, what to do? First thing first, take care of grandma. So I took care of grandma, then I took care of whatever. And I was amazed. Something which at the beginning seemed like impossible, impossible to deal with. Which then could have led me to be quite angry and quite stressed and upset and everything. In one hour, it was finished, clean, taken care of, no problem, in a very quiet and compassionate manner. And that really showed me, again, what we can do with the exaggeration, how, again, we make it so difficult for ourselves. When if we, again, weaken the greed and the hatred, in a way dissolve the exaggeration, actually things can be taken care of, even the hard one. Then you have the next one. Greed and hatred are dissolved. They're gone. Wouldn't it be nice? This would be nice, wouldn't it? If the world was like this, no war, no crime, it would be wonderful. So possibly it's a little idealistic, but I still think it's a good idea to aim for it. But to me, what it is about is actually helping us to see a little these immediate automatic tendencies, which we'll look more tomorrow with the feeling tone, or of that you come into contact with something and immediately you are for it or you are against it. So in a way, we have this very immediate reaction. I want this, I hate this. I like this, I don't like this. I mean, you arrived the first evening, and then you went into silence. And what is very interesting the first day is how you decide how you like some people that you have no idea about, and how you dislike some others which you also have no idea about. Just on contact, with just the way they look. Maybe the clothes they wear, maybe, who knows? 
They could look like your great uncle, and it's not their fault. <laughs> but to me, that's what is so interesting on a silent retreat, is actually that effect of going so quickly in automatic. I like this person, I don't like that one. And then at the end of the retreat, you break the silence. And all this time, you made all this story about all these different people. And generally, you talk to them and they're often so different from what you made up. So different. And so to me, that's what the Buddha seems to be talking about. That immediate reaction to coming in contact with things, with people, and that going. And one easy way to experience it is when you look at a football match or at a tennis match or anything of that nature. Once I was walking, visiting my mother who lives downstairs and she was watching TV and there was a, a football match. Some guys were in blue, some guys were in red, and within three minutes, I was for the blue against the red, when I had no idea who they were, and I don't care about football. But it was fairly immediate. You know, I am for this one. I, I am not for that one. It's so quick. We can go so quick. And then, you know, we'll fight with other people because I am for that one. And if I am for that one, he is a better one. You see, that's a problem which we go with that. And then we've, we fight for it. And so in a way, it's to that reaction going, to me, would make such a difference to the way we would be in the world. There would be, I would say, more creativity, more creative engagement, more place for differences, for changeability, and things of that nature. And then we have the last one. So what's left? That's what I love. What's left? And what's left? Three things are left. Plus two, but those are two are a bit metaphysical, so we won't go there. But there is three, which is conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. So what is very interesting is that belief in self goes but conceit is still there. <laughs> and so whenever you hear somebody saying, I am enlightened, you can be sure they're not there. <laughs> they might have got the first one, but it's sure they've not got the fourth one. <laughs> Definitely. Because as long as you have the conceit, I am like this, I am like that. When you think either of yourself superior, or either of yourself inferior, as long as they're still measuring competition, then this is not it. And so in a way to, to, to see that we can lose this sense of self, that we feel that it's more processual, but this sense of identity is so strong. I think it's so strong, this sense of self-consciousness, of identity, because I think what it does is help us to feel I exist. It's basically, you know, I am, I am here, look at me, and it's still there, it's still there. And in a way, one could say it's the last thing that will go. <laughs> so in a way, we have to accept that. 
I think we have to accept that it could be really actually very hardwired physiologically. And so in a way to be careful of that, of because we have had certain experience, and that's what I could notice in this book I just read, because the, he, he, the belief in self had gone. He was so sure about it that, you know, he had to convince everybody about it. <laughs> and you could feel a certain arrogance. You know, there is another book, wonderful book, about the guy who says, I am an arrogant. And I know that. He has even kind of like this on the internet. He has written, and I am not going to change my mind <laughs> about what an arrogant is. And I thought, you are an arrogant and you don't believe in impermanence? I'm not going to change my mind. And seemingly he's already changed his mind a little, but <laughs> then you have restlessness. And it's kind of like a little unsettledness, a little not being totally at ease, kind of looking for things, not you know, not being totally settled. So that in a way there is still, I think to me, this is something we we might work all our life about energy, how we are with the energy we have. And how, in a way, they, they kind of like, we have energy and we think, where, where, where can it go? And we kind of look for something. You know, there is, there is still not that ease of just being here. I'm not saying this is a false stage. But just to give you a little impression on what it might be. And this was many years ago, again, I was with my grandmother and Every afternoon, I would play dominoes with her. And so, you know, it's autumn, and we're playing the domino in the veranda. So we, you know, in the warmth and no wind. But outside, leaves are falling down on the patio. And my grandmother hated leaves. She saw they were very dangerous. <laughs> so we were playing, and suddenly she has this look. And I look, and there is three leaves on the patio. <laughs> so she cannot really get up, so I get up, I sweep the leaves, back to the domino. Then she gets a look again. Four leaves, okay, I get up, sweep the leaves, back to the domino. All right, I look, two more. So I get up, third time. And I'm sweeping the leaves. And I'm starting with like, one cannot say this is very heroic, you know, playing dominoes, sweeping leaves repeatedly. And then suddenly, so in a way it's nearly like there was this feeling, I could be somewhere else. I could be, do something more important, more meaningful. And suddenly, there was this experience of what I would call great acceptance. And then there was this amazing ease. And there was this feeling that at that moment, there was nothing else to do. It was just a perfect moment, playing dominoes, sweeping leaves. There was no need for anything else. And I wonder if that's what this is about. That finally is a restlessness, wanting to be someone else, wanting to be somewhere else, really goes. And we really, in a way, 
totally inhibit our experience. And then the last one is ignorance. And that we talked about that yesterday when I talk about the characteristics. And so another aspect of ignorance is actually ignorance is dispelled when we totally know the three characteristics, when we really know in our bone that things are changing, that things are dukkha, and that things are anatta, but that we really know it. So then it's not intellectual anymore. It's not kind of like rationalizing it, but it's really knowing it to such an extent that it really makes a difference in our daily life. So instead of seeing things are fixed and solid and I'm fixed and solid, knowing nearly immediately, this could change. This is conditioned. How can I be with this condition that have arisen? How can I be with the change that could happen? How could I help the change to happen? Or how could I accept the changing nature of whatever is going on? So in a way, it's kind of like this wisdom, which is really experiential, and then which really makes a difference in the way we are in the world, in the way we act, in the way we speak, etc. So that's the four stages of awakening. And to me, I don't take them literally that we have to do exactly that, and it's exactly that way. But I think it's an interesting framework. And personally, I would not see that as impossible. But I would see that as inspiring me to go on a lifelong journey of exploration, of the condition in which I find myself, or how can I develop the muscle to creatively engage with my condition in different ways. So in a way to see that it is in a way what we're doing here is not just that we want the Big Bang experience and then we sort it and we can, you know, stop meditating and forget about silence and, you know, but that it's a multi-life, it's a one-life training. We can train for our whole life. And I want to finish with just a little quote from the Zen tradition. So it's a different angle, which we'll look at in two days. So it's Master Tawi, who is a 12th century Chinese master, and he had a very good rapport with the lay people, and so had lots of letters between the lay people and him, and that's why he introduced some meditation, which we'll, I will bring in two days the questioning, which is uh, developed so that it would be easy to do. You'll see for yourself. But this is what he says. There is this uh, person who is practicing, and they've exchanged letters and advices and everything, and now that fellow is saying this. And you might have felt a little like that guy at some point during this retreat. Your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dull. So basically the fellow is saying, 
I'm trying to practice and really it's not working. You know, I'm feeling sleepy, there is no energy, you know, you know, things are not really moving ahead here. And that's what uh, Dawi says. The one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. <laughs> so I wanted to finish with that. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Before you explain uh, ignorance as, be, as knowing the uh, sorry, the cessation of ignorance as knowing the three characteristics. I was wondering if that ignorance was the same as delusion that we were talking about earlier today. Because in, nowhere in here does delusion disappear. Well, I think, again, this is ignorance, and Stephen gave us a little different definition as a being unclear. But uh, I would say, you see, it's like anything. You have the word more ignorance, and then you have many different definitions. But what I would say, one of the main definitions is that one, is the really knowing the three characteristics, so then, then the ignorance of, like basically the misapprehension. Like when you say, it's always like this. Basically, you're misperceiving that things can change. When you're saying, you should make me happy all the time. You must perceiving dukkha. When you're saying, I am like this, no matter what, you're misperceiving anatta. So, and so, so the Buddha said one of the reasons for suffering is this misperception because of this tendency we have to fix, to solidify. And so, I feel that's what the ignorance is, is the, the ignorance leads to the misperception. The misperception will lead to the suffering. So that's one of the explanations of how it works with the ignorance. And you see, we have to be very careful that also people use the word illusion, use the word delusion. Actually, you don't find it in that way, it doesn't have the same meaning as Maya. In the Hindu tradition, you have the word Maya, which means illusion. That everything is Maya, everything is illusion, because there is this transcendent real stuff. But for the Buddha, again, when there is this famous quote about things are like a froth or like a bubble, it's again pointing out to the conditionality. So what he is saying when things are, there is an ignorance or you are deluded about something is back to this misperception that you think things are a certain way when they're not that way. That's generally one of the main ideas. Yes? What is your view uh, that is the realization of nirvana that leads to each of the four stages? Repeat it. Awareness of Nirvana that yeah. leads to each of the four stages of awakening. What is your view on that? 
but I never heard of that one. So, so what does it mean? Are you can you kind of so it means that people say when you have an experience of nirvana, you experience the first one. That is how it's been taught to me. So you have an experience of nirvana, right? It could be a split second. It could be however long, and then you have that the stream entry, and then you have a. Another experience, and so it goes like that. Uh, okay, then in a way, it comes back a little to the idea we already mentioned sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. And when Stephen talks about stream entry, that's what he's going to talk about. That actually there is a breakthrough. You have, like, personally, what I would call all these, I would actually call de grasping. You have a moment, the first one is a little moment of degrasping, then more degrasping. So personally, I would look at it more that way. And each time that you have a moment of degrasping, of course, you, call it, you could call it a moment of nirvana, if that's what you call it in your Buddhist culture. In the Korean thing, they would say it's a moment of awakening. Uh, it's a moment, or they would say a moment of seeing the Buddha nature, somewhere else, some would say something else. But yeah, personally, I would say it's a moment of degrasping. So in a way, you have an experience. It's not just a rational understanding. You have an experience of degrasping that you really experience yourself. So then it changed a little the way you are, but you still have work to do because of the inclination. The power of the inclination are quite strong. The power of the habits are quite strong. So if we mean the same thing, I would say yes that you have the experience, the breakthrough, which then makes you access this processual, conditional nature of things. One could say also express it that way. Over there. I'm a little bit uncomfortable about the inclusion of doubt, because doubt to me makes it sound like a, a religion, a belief that you shouldn't question. And I've always considered that it's a good thing to have doubt because it's the questioning mind. But there's two ways of looking at doubt, and maybe it's the understanding of, of, of that word itself. But there's, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're um, losing clarity or way, or you don't have certainty. It's a, a willingness to say, let me test out for myself rather than this is what I'm told is true and I'm going to believe it. Yeah, no, no, that's not that kind of doubt. You see, what you have to see is that the, the doubt which is speaking of here is a very specific doubt. And so that's why in two days you're going to question all day long. So don't worry about that. If you question doubt, they'll have a certain um, very fixed idea. We shouldn't doubt because we should be believing. No, no, here actually is what they call vacillating doubt. A doubt which stops you from acting. A doubt which stops you from meditating a doubt which stops you from being ethical, a doubt which... So it's kind of like, and in, um, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have, a, Stephen will mention it too, but they have a wonderful uh, image for that doubt. And they say it's like if you try to sew with a two-pronged needle. <laughs> that actually doesn't work. Should I do this? Should I do that? So it's more that. It's kind of something which undermines the practice which kind of what you could call self-doubt, but in a negative, depressing way. But it doesn't mean that, that's why generally I would use the word questioning for what you're talking about, exploration, questioning, looking deeply, because that still continues the vipassana aspect. 
But what goes is that I am not so sure, I don't know if I can do this. More that kind of like what I would call fragilizing doubt, which kind of paralyzes people. Then, uh, yeah. Could you say a little bit more about um, greed and hatred being dissolved um, versus them just being weakened? And if they're dissolved, um, how does that fit with all things are impermanent anyway? And like, and if they're dissolved, would you still expect that there's that sort of immediate um, response as in the fight flight? response in terms of like, you know, there's the Vedana and then there's a, there's a response to the Vedana. That's why I'm saying we have to be careful yeah. to consider this not a description, not literal, but to see it as a framework which is interesting, you know, because I totally agree with you. What does it mean to have no greed and hatred? But toward the end, we'll talk about equanimity, which will then kind of link and look at what does it mean, equanimity. So I think, in a way, we can, again, people will explain it in different way. You know, like, you know, there is no desire anymore. But then you say, well, you know, then you're not going to eat. So, and the Buddha was still eating, and he still had headache, and he was also still, you know, stroppy if he needed to be stroppy. And he was also like, you know, if people gave him a hard time, he just said, okay, you know, like when the monks, once the monks were so noisy and so quarrelsome, he said, I I'm out, I'm out, you know, I'm going to in the forest. And they really kind of, you know, pff, too much of a bother. So, I mean, he was bothered by them because he could see. So the fact that greed and hatred go doesn't look like differentiation go. Or Stephen might tell you about a story where, a wonderful story where, um, the dreaded cousin tried to take over. And he says to the Buddha three times, you know, you're really done, man. You're really done. You know, let the new generation come in. I can take care of you much better than you. You know, I'm... And the Buddha says to him, I will not even, you know, give the leadership to my two great uh, Mogalana and, and the other one let alone a piece of spittle like you. <laughs> so obviously, you know, the Buddha still had kind of feelings. <laughs> so he was not just planning, you know, above on his little kind of cloud, you know, who cares, you know, let him do it. No, no. I think, again, it's back to we have to be careful to take this thing literally. And to me, when I look at this kind of thing, I'm not interested of is this true, but I'm more interested how can this inspire me? How can this put some light in what the work is about? Instead of, it's true, if you look at it literally, then where does it stop? I totally agree. But yes? Yes, yeah, yeah, because I think what we have to also see, things, things go, but it doesn't say what comes. And that's what I was trying to show in my symbols of awakening. What comes, if this goes, then what you have is wisdom and compassion. 
And then you have more and more a compassion, creative, wise compassion operating. And you have more wisdom for yourself and other operating. Which again, back to the symbol, can be of benefit, not only to yourself, but to others. So yes. So in a way, that's why we have to be careful when things are presented as going. In a way, we would need the other side of it, which is what is there instead, which would be another kind of presentation. Yeah, no, no, again, you see, like you hear these words, and it's kind of, personally, I would say to be creative with it. In the same way, I am creative with it. I give different interpretations, which might not be exactly chapter and verse that you'll find in the Pali Canon or in the... But what, how does it speak to you? And I would say, yes, <coughs> there is like, you know, when often I find it interesting when I'm in trains. I'm in trains, sitting on my, you know, seat, and then next to me, there is something like that, somebody like that. And they can't, they can't. And I kind of, I'm, I feel like, <laughs> but I don't say anything. I just, just find it fascinating, this kind of like, it's very interesting. And to me, that is actually an example of that restlessness. But there are many different examples of that restlessness, which can be very painful for ourselves and others. And how can we help with that? And I think actually one of the things we can do is if we are at peace, at ease ourselves, actually it can be contagious. So back to the symbol, we're not just doing it for ourselves. I know when I used to visit an old lady who was in an old people's home, and she used to get very agitated. And when I would be with her, I we would just sit there. And she used to be a Quaker. But she could not do that in the old people's home. And I would, we would just sit quietly together. And she would say to her uh, daughter, a good friend of mine, how oh, it's so nice, just sitting with her. You know, that's what she liked the most, the fact that we could just sit quietly. That me just being able to sit quietly at ease actually would help her to also experience that. So I think this is also part of it, that it's something we can also share with others. And we have to stop here so you can have a little walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.